0: Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we talk about one of the most significant events in the history of your church, that you would communicate through me material that is the most helpful and useful. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were going to try to conclude from the writings of Ellen White what the content of the 1888 lectures was... Here are some themes you would hear repeatedly. One of them that was mentioned this morning is the matchless charms of Jesus. Another one is the relation of the law to the gospel. And this relation is so significant in the teachings of Jones and Wagner. How many of you have read the book Lessons on Faith? Huh. That's shocking to me. Listen, I assign every one of you except Al to read that book by the end of the semester or else to come up with a very good excuse why you didn't do it. How big is it? You could read that book through if you were if you were talking to someone while you did it. In other words, if you're reading it lightly, you could read it through in a few hours. It's a powerful, powerful book. Is that an book. No. Lessons on Faith was a series of lectures prepared in response after 1888. Of course, this was a general conference meeting, right? The leaders are there, but what about the people? Um, The people need to hear this, and soon Jones has an editorship of the Review and Herald. The Review and Herald began to print a series of articles, first by Jones and Wagner, back and forth, on the topic of faith. Lessons on faith is just a series of Bible studies on faith. I can credit that book with much of the success I've had in the canvassing world. I learned from that book to think once I'd read that book, faith was a concrete idea in my mind and it never backed away from that concrete. I'll give you some of the ideas that have come from that book that you've probably heard sermon after sermon on. One book in there is cre- called, or one chapter is called Creation or Evolution. It's not about Darwinian theory, it's about sanctification. It's about how to deal with the bad habit that you have. The standard theory being that you will try to wean yourself away from it. If you're the only one trying to quit smoking by reducing the number of cigarettes, 14, 13, 12, 11, 5, 3, 2, 1 per day, then they get down to zero per day and that works until someone irritates them. Now I happen to know someone who did wean himself like that and has stopped. So, in case you ever listen to this, I don't want him to get the idea that I think that it never happened. Neither do I think that you're necessarily going to start again when someone irritates you. That was just in case. But this chapter explains that what Jesus offers us in response to faith is the miraculous creation of a new heart that how long does it take God to create a new heart? He says, let there be light and there was light. And uh, He can create in you a new heart. If you will believe in His creative power, He will create in you. You need to read the Bible study. That's only a snippet of it, but it's a powerful sermon. I have several copies. But you can get your own probably for four ninety five, and if you meet one of the men who are spending their life promoting Jones Minor material and you tell them you'd like to read that book, I almost guarantee they'll pick open their bag and hand you one. There's another section in there that is talking about victory. And it uses an illustration that I read this when I was 17 and I've never forgotten it. That's 18 years ago. The illustration presented better there than I'm going to copy it to you. It talks about how soldiers, the soldiers of Alexander, were always anxious to go to another battle. They couldn't wait to go to another battle, they loved it. They, they would get upset and, and nervous if there wasn't someone to fight. And, and the question is why? Well, because they never once in their entire experience suffered defeat. He says in there that battle is not such a doleful thing if you're always having victory. In other words, the Christian life can be quite an exciting experience. But why is it for some people quite a depressing experience? Well, that's because victory, defeat, victory, defeat, defeat, victory, defeat. don't want to fight, don't want to fight, defeat, don't want to fight, don't want to fight. And that's really a powerful book. And you'd like to read it. But what am I bringing out? That, what was presented in 1888, when we talk about righteousness by faith, there were two ideas developed by Jones and Wagner that, while they are somewhat obvious, are also extremely profound. One of them is the definition of righteousness. I think we all know it's obedience to God's commandments, it's that. But righteousness by faith is the righteousness of Jesus by faith. And so there's quite a study there about the righteousness of Jesus. That is about the right doing and commandment keeping of Jesus. Suddenly you're studying about the thing that all your life you've known you should be thinking about more. But now you're finding that there's content to it. What do I mean by content to it? I mean that there is a sentimental side of preaching the cross of Christ. And I don't want to put it down. But in that side, the facts can be stated for the most part in 11 seconds. Jesus died and paid for my sins so I don't have to pay for them. He suffered That's profound itself and deserves attention. But Jones and Wagner presented so much more content that it takes a large part of the Bible to explain the beauty of the character of God. The significance of the atonement the how it works, the science of salvation, the relation of justice, the nature of the human heart, really, they made a science out of the thing that we treated as simplistic, and that science ends up by itself making a lot of other things that we tried to study more diligently, like perhaps Revelation 11, as maybe an example... It dims those things significantly by the glory of the topic. I have developed a few illustrations that I gathered. Maybe I should tell you this just kind of as a history. The reason that I am teaching at Washita Hills is because of a book written by Jones and Wagner. The book, Glad Tidings. That's why. How did it happen? I got a hold of that book when I was 17 years old. Went on a mission trip to Mexico. It so captured my attention that I was getting up at 4.30, 5 in the morning and going outside to a street lamp there in Mexico and reading the book under the lamp. And it was the Clarks, Harriet and... Well, Mr. and and Dr. Clark, they're observing me doing that, that put an idea in their mind to call me later and invite me to come teach here. Which is not part of the history of 1888. I'm just trying to use it to illustrate the power of that material. What is Glad Tidings? It's a verse-by-verse study of the book of Galatians. Can I show you one of those things that I remember reading in that book? I think it might be in the first two pages that I never forgot for another 17 years. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And look in the first few verses for this idea that Jesus gave himself for our sins. What verse is that in? Verse 4. Galatians one four. Jesus gave himself for our sins. That is the phrase that was developed in Glad Tidings. It was developed like this. When you buy something at the store, you trade your money for the something. Because you live in a free country, you buy it on purpose. Why do you give money for it? You want it. And if it cost more than you wanted it, would you give money for it? When you pay for it, it's proof that you wanted it more than it cost. Now, if you pay for it, is there any question about whether or not you're going to take it with you? Isn't it very obvious if you paid for it that you want it very badly? Enough to pay for it. Then is the question, will you receive it? If the, if the cashier asks you, are you willing to take this with you? Wouldn't it be a silly question? But isn't that the question that we put in our minds when we question about whether or not Jesus is willing to receive us? Hasn't he paid for us? Didn't he do it on purpose? Then how much does he want us? More than he wanted his own life. Isn't it very clear? And wouldn't it be a very strange question to ask him if he would receive you? Now, what did he give himself for? What does it say? He gave himself to take your sins. How badly did he want to take your sins? He wanted to to take your sins badly enough to die. That's how much he wanted to take your sins. Is he willing to take your sins? If the devil ever tells you your sins are so bad that he's not willing to take them, you can know from Galatians four that he wanted them badly enough to take them. How do you know? Because he paid for it. That idea has meaning. It's a sample of what Jones and Wagner were teaching. It was the material that the heart is looking for. The things we need to be thinking about. Maybe some of you theologically inclined have wondered why 1888 gets so much attention. You probably know already that people who emphasize 1888 don't agree with each other on what is true. For example, I emphasize it and I disagree significantly with others who emphasize 1888 on what is true. But why does it get so much attention? Because the things that we all agree on as being true are power. A tidbit from the teaching of Jones and Wagner. What is the gospel according to Romans 1? It's the power of Christ unto salvation. What is the gospel? It's the power of Christ. But the gospel is the preaching of the cross. But the preaching of the cross is power. Do you want power in your preaching? Then preach the gospel of the cross of Christ. That is the power of God unto salvation. It's power. Don't look for power somewhere else. That's where the power is at. This is what Paul was teaching very purposefully in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's saying, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, why nothing else? Because He wanted to have power. And He said, I didn't want your faith to stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. But what's the power of God? It's the preaching of the cross. So he didn't want people to have their the foundation of their believing on the rhetorical skill of a speaker. He wanted their faith to be settled on the power of God as manifested in the cross. But what kind of power was manifested in the cross? Well, it was the power of love. And this is developed, this is a Bible study. I mean, I'm giving you the conclusions, but what Jones and Wagner gave was the study. The study developed a system of belief that showed man, that they had been lousy polemicists. What does that mean? They had been low arguers of doctrine. However right they had been in all their doctrines, they had just been base arguers about what's right and what's wrong. And that never did convert someone. It did a lot of other things. Here were men who could take the cross and present it as the gospel, the answer to man's need, In such a way that you could see all the truths of Adventism, you could see that obviously they were true. I mean, keeping the commandments, that's a duh when you understand the righteousness of Christ in relation to the gospel. And if you understand keeping the commandments, well obviously keeping the Sabbath, and there in the Sabbath is the power of God manifested in creation. Really, everything we teach ends up being very central if this ends up being the center. Some people make quite an issue over the apostasy of Jones and Wagner. I think we talked about this several lectures ago in the "Weak Confound the Wise: why God chooses men. And it makes perfect sense to me why God chose Jones and Wagner to present the truths they did. First of all, he gifted them so they could present them in a most wonderful way. Second of all, their weaknesses were such that that was their best chance, their best stab at heaven. But Ellen White speaks clearly that the blood of their loss is going to be charged to the account of others. Not meaning that they won't be held accountable for their decisions. We all are. But the men who opposed them... Do you realize how it feels to be teaching the truth and to be opposed by men who should are responsible to be teaching the truth? That is a very painful experience. Especially if they are your elder statesmen. Having to push against that pressure... softened these men up to make them easy victims of Satan's seeds of bitterness. I'll get your question in just a moment, David. If there is a lesson to be learned about 1888, it is the lesson of Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. Hebrews 12 and 13 teach that paying attention to Jesus is what gives you spiritual energy in your life. It's what keeps you from going weary and well-doing. But after that introduction, a little bit later in the chapter, it says, "...looking diligently, lest any root of..." Do you the next word? "...any root of bitterness spring up and trouble you, and thereby many be defiled." In other words, the opposing forces in the life of a man are the righteousness of Jesus, His sacrifice in our attention. But when that receives our attention, and then we're growing quickly, Satan pulls out, if he can, his very strongest opposition. And what is the thing that he opposes to the consideration of Jesus? It's bitterness. Why does the devil pull out the bitterness stop at that juncture? Because he knows that the presentation of that topic will always raise opposition. This is what Galatians teaches. It's what Jude teaches. It's what Genesis teaches. It's that if you begin teaching this truth as it is in Jesus, men will oppose you. Satan will oppose you through men. And Satan will try to soften you up by the opposition to make you vulnerable to a root of bitterness then my closing lesson for you in this short lecture is to watch yourself when you come to understand the righteousness of Christ in relation to the law. Watch yourself when you come to understand faith and grace in the gospel because when you take it on yourself to teach it, the devil no doubt is going to use the very same tactic on you that he's used in the past and are you warned in scripture looking, what's the word? Diligently lest any root of Bitterness spring up and trouble who? You, and thereby many be defiled. So we have the benefit of history. We shouldn't be so easy to fool. You had a comment or a question, David? Yeah, so at the end, a. T. Jones and uh, Wagner. You want to know what happened to them is what you're sort of asking. So the summary of what happened to them was that Ellen White wrote a letter to Jones that he needed to do something to help Dr. Kellogg. See, Kellogg had been used by God to do a mighty work in reference to the health work. Kellogg's contribution to Adventism placed us in the brightest light in the view of the world. Presidents came to Battle Creek for treatment in our sanitarium. United States presidents. You might think we're more advanced now than then, but that's not happening today. And we have a lot more hospitals. Kellogg was a mighty man. And Satan used the very same method we just talked about. Satan began to plant in, in Kellogg a bitterness. Why? Because Kellogg was presenting truth and the pastors were receiving it coolly. That C-O-O-L-Y, I think. I should never try to spell things when I'm teaching. There were many ministers that were still meat eaters. And here, Mr. Mr. Kellogg was promoting not just vegetarianism, but exercise and drinking water. And what was going on with with the ministers, the leaders of this church? They were giving an example of growing overweight, sitting at their desk, hunched over in rooms without fresh air, and eating good dead cows. And it really made it difficult for Kellogg to make progress. Do you understand where he's coming from? Anyway, it was no excuse for him to become bitter. But it was happening. And when you become bitter, you become less sensitive to the teachings of the Spirit. So who was a man who could help Kellogg? Jones did not have a mind quite as strong as Kellogg's, but he had probably the closest thing to Kellogg's genius mind that exists in the domination. And Jones began helping Kellogg. But there came a point when Ellen White wrote to Jones and told him he needed to leave Kellogg alone or his mind would be over... I forget the word, but like overwhelmed by the power of Kellogg's mind. In other words, the fact that you try to help someone is no proof that they're going to be helped. You give them your best shot. That's what Jesus did for Judas. Jones, when he received that second counsel, made what I consider to be that terminal blunder in his life. He took his old teaching that new revelation must be judged by old revelation. He compared the letter that said, Go help Kellogg, to the later letter that said, Time to leave Kellogg alone. And concluded that since the first thing was true... The second thing must be false. Of course, what's the error in that line of reasoning? Circumstances alter cases. A man that is a heretic reject after the second admonition. So you try to help him, yes or no? Yes. Help him twice? Yes. Help him three times? No. There's, a, Do you follow the... the There's nothing inconsistent from what was going on, but that root of bitterness was what clouded the mind of Jones. He didn't accept that counsel. Wagner's influence over, excuse me, Kellogg's influence over him did blind him. He began accepting pantheistic theories. His idea about inspiration began to degenerate. He concluded that Ellen White was a false prophet. He maintained that she was a false teacher on the basis of the fact that what she taught about how to relate to National Sunday Laws, That is, Ellen White's counsel was that when the Sunday laws come, instead of going out to hoe our our potatoes on Sunday, we should make that a day to do evangelism. To go and give Bible studies. Devote it to to religious purposes. In Jones' mind, at that darkened stage, that looked very much like receiving the mark of the beast. Like not standing up for the Right? Of course, what does God's law say? It says, remember the seventh day to keep it holy. And how do we stand up? By teaching the truth about the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath and refusing to work on the Sabbath. But Jones didn't see it. His mind was darkened. He concluded that Ellen White was a false prophet. And to the end of his life, Jones remained a Sabbath keeper that believed the truth about death But he ended up joining for a brief time the Sabbatarian Pentecostals and uh, and then ended up being by himself. And Wagner went out a different door. He went out the door of immorality, began cherishing thoughts that he had married the wrong person, realized that he had just met someone who would have been a much better person to marry, much better character, concluded that since he couldn't do that here on earth, that at least in the new earth, which was soon coming, he could marry the person God intended for him. He was very happy about that. He began teaching this idea that, um, that we shouldn't divorce our wives here, but if we married the wrong one, we could form a friendship with the one we should have married and develop a spiritual affinity, he called it. But that's too close to playing with satanic delusions to not get burnt. When the brother saw what was going on, they sent him to Europe to save him. That is, they sent him, they sent his wife, but who did they not send? His secretary, but he was only over there a few years, began writing her and then called her to Europe. She came, he divorced his wife and married her. And that was it. That has zero impact on the power of the Bible presented in the studies that they have taught. And it's true, as you can learn from Corinthians, that if God gives you the gift of tongues, is that evidence that you're going to be a sanctified person for the rest of your life? You can become proud and arrogant and you still have the gift of tongues. It looks like that also applies to gifts of wisdom and gifts of understanding. It behooves us to be careful lest any root of bitterness spring up. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the examples of men who held faithful to you to the end. I ask that you would forgive us as a church for the way we have opposed your teachers to the extent that we've made them vulnerable to Satan's bitterness. And I ask that by Your Spirit You would preserve us from falling into a similar trap. That as the world opposes us, that You would remind us to look diligently, lest any root of bitterness spring up in our own experience. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.